Hey friends, once again, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast where we're talking about racial justice and social change. I'm one of your hosts, Andre Henry. And I'm your other host, Trishes. And we're joined today by a very special guest, Tiffany Drayton. Uh, Tiffany is a mother, world traveler, journalist whose work has been featured in the New York Times, Vox, Marie Claire, Playboy, Salon, and Complex, and Yahoo, and other outlets. She is also the author of several books, and we're so excited to have you here, Tiffany. Thanks for joining Woo! us. I'm going to be my own like cheering crowd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what happened to the sound effects? We my have, own sound, effects. have sound effects somewhere, but I feel like when we do the sound effects, it gets funny. We I have sound, sound effects. effects for us. Okay, that's not done. Okay, boom. <laughs> they're so late. Why are they so late? I didn't hear it. You are the only one that gets to hear the sound effects. No, I found out it's because it's in preview mode when I was doing it before. But now if I click this button that says live, it will insert the sound effects into the thing. But I hear it's just, I didn't hear it. That's it's, okay. just very, didn't hear it. it's just very <laughs> slow. <laughs> It's churning. So at any point now, we're going to be interrupted by... Uh, <laughs> at any point, there will be random applause. <laughs> by canned laughter and applause. <laughs> at the worst moment, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's going to be something really serious and the crowd's going to go wild. I went to... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, Tiffany, how are you doing? How are you joining us today? Oh, ooh, well, I'm joining you today... Um, on the day that I'm going to see my kids for the first time in about a year. Oh, so that's wow. So oh, quite wow. an auspicious day. Wow. It is an auspicious day. Mm-hmm. You want me to tell you why? Is that what it's about? That's that's I don't a, know. I, what is whatever you want to get into, but that's, like, that's, that's a lot. Well, well because I, wanna... I said in my book that I was in an abusive relationship, a narcissistic yes. abusive relationship with the United States of America and with my ex, with whom I have two children. Yes. And that I left the country to get away from them. And then they teamed up using the court system to drive me back. So here I am. Where's uh, the applause? No, not I yet. know. Like, that would have been, that would actually have been well, a good, course, good point you, for some wry laughter. You got to tell us, tell us yeah. all about the book so then we can know where we're at now. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So, um, Black American Refugee Escaping the Narcissism of the American Dream. That is my book, my first memoir, my third book. Um, it's essentially my life story, um, kind of layered with history and also psychology. So the thesis mm-hmm. of my book is that Black America is in a narcissistic, abusive relationship with their own country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use my life story to kind of demonstrate that. Um, so each chapter is broken down by uh, the different parts of the cycle of abuse and also the different parts of my life story. So I kind of demonstrate how over the course of a life, you see that abuse play out. Yes, this is. So I read the book, I think it was a couple years ago now that I read it. No, it couldn't be because it came out last year. It right? came out last year. It came out last year. So, um, and it's brilliantly done. Like that structure is so brilliantly done. And um, you already kind of alluded to it, you know, about your own experience and your 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 relationship with your ex and how that kind of became the frame for how you're talking about Black America. But could you unpack that some more about what does it mean for Black America to be in an abusive, a narcissistic abusive relationship with the U.S.? Yeah, well, in order to understand the thesis, you kind of have to break down what narcissistic abuse even is. 
And that's what each chapter of my book tries to do. So mm-hmm. a narcissistic abusive relationship begins with a stage called love bombing. Yeah. So if you ever meet someone and they're like, you, God sent you for me, you're perfect for me. And, you know, they seem so perfect and the relationship moves really quickly. Run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Lock, run, <laughs> duck, dive, roll under a truck. I don't care. Anything. Just leave. But Anything Tiffany, else. no one has liked me so much before. So, so Exactly. They don't like you that much. They just crazy. Yeah, you're amazing, but they're crazy. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So um, so in the beginning stages of a narcissistic abuse, you get that really um, love bombing, like everything is terrific stage. And yeah. I liken that to how America kind of packages itself as this home for everyone it's like you come to america everything's going to be perfect god said this country was great make may god make america great again you know and you know it's like and in fact like the very basis of america stealing land from the natives mm-hmm. was manifest destiny which is like this is right. what god told us to do so right. when you, when you see kind of like the same tropes that abusers invoke to mm-hmm. control power over people or over yeah. their victims you see america doing the very same thing you know especially as an immigrant as an immigrant, yeah. it's like you come to America, everything's paved with gold, everything. You just have to work really hard, bootstrap, pull, and boom, there you are. You're a millionaire, too. And mm. it's like, then un- then reality unfolds. So over the course of the book, the um, following stages of narcissistic abuse, which um, the valuation is typically what you experience next, um, where you're with someone and things were perfect, but all of a sudden you're imperfect. And this person it's just pointing out all of your flaws and trying to do things to degrade you and, and just treating you atrociously. And you're just confused. You're like, but wait, miss, miss. right. And, you know, you kind of see that with how America has treated its, it's how America treats its populace in real time, its black populace in real time, and also mm-hmm. over the course of history. And so I really right. try to kind of map out that kind of historical cycle all throughout the course of the book. And that's yeah. how you get this, this kind of, you know, layered where it's my story, where you're seeing the cycle of abuse playing out over the course of my life. And also the history of black America, where you're seeing it play out over the course of centuries. You've mentioned coming to America a couple of times. And this, I just want to make it clear to our listeners that um, about your background, you know, like the perspective yep. that you're coming from. So from Trinidad. And, <laughs> and then and then expatriating back to Trinidad, you know, right. in, in the book. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit. And I know, Trish, you know, you you've had a similar experience. So, I mean, if you want to share, too. But could you talk a bit about how do I ask this question? Because I feel like people don't understand that when you're Caribbean black, it's a different experience, especially if you weren't born here. I was born right. here, you know, but my house was a little Jamaica. But if you came here from the Caribbean, you know, that influences what you're saying about, you know, how America is marketed to us. Because for those of us who were born here, I mean, it was marketed to that, that way as well. But it's just different. So could you talk a bit about that experience of coming here as an immigrant, going back to Trinidad? And just the experience of being Caribbean in America and how, you know, yeah, what that absolutely. means to you. Yeah, I mean, these are things that, by the way, <clears throat> unpacking my relationship to this country as an immigrant woman took, I would say, up until I was in my early 20s. And I had a professor call. His name is Derek Hamilton. He's, he's amazing. Research him. He's, 
um, he teaches a class mm-hmm. called Racial Stratification in the U.S. Economy. And what mm-hmm. that is, is essentially a breakdown of how America is essentially a caste system. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, going back to the fact that I immigrated here, I came to the United States of America when I was four years old from Trinidad. And you come with these expectations and you come with this understanding that this is a place where you can work hard and you can achieve and so on and so forth. But then as you begin to then you start walking into the black neighborhoods and you're like, but why is what's going on in this black neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And then you walk into the white neighborhoods and you're like, but why are these neighborhoods the ni- nice ones? And then you start mm-hmm. going to schools and the black schools, you're like, but why is this school so bad? Why does this, why mm-hmm. does this school has, uh, you know, have no funding? Why does this school have, you know, in, in my case, I went to, you know, different schools all across the United States of America, whether it be Jersey, I went to school in Texas and Florida. And you just saw these hideous discrepancies between schooling environments, depending on people's race, where yeah. it's like um, a majority black school. You barely you have 40 kids in a classroom, you have 30 kids in a classroom, it's rowdy, it's terrible, you're upset, you know, and then you go to these, you know, better funded white schools, and all of a sudden everything is clean. All of a sudden mm-hmm. you have resources, all of a sudden there's mm-hmm. AP classes and electives. And so walking into that, making sense of that, the first narrative that you get as an immigrant is to distance yourself from African American people. Because you're like, well, there must mm-hmm. be something wrong with these folks. Mm-hmm. You're like, these people, clearly something wrong with mm-hmm. them. Because why else yeah. would they be living like this? And yeah. that, that narrative is fed to you and people don't know, but it's really through the conservative right wing and through yes. the media. And yes. so the media is always teaching you these things about black people and reinforcing this uh, stereotyping of black American people and African-American people to the point where even immigrants will internalize it. And oh, you know, yeah. as a child, not being able to recognize that you're walking into a much larger dynamic you're just seeing it, you know, as superficially as possible. You just equate black with bad, white yes. with good. It's just an easy equation. Yeah. Um, and it took me up until even even college. This is this is really pathetic to admit, but it's true. It, it really took getting to the point where I had to be educated out of that level of self-hate mm-hmm. and also be educated to be a true ally as an immigrant and not yeah. like like how dare you come into somebody's country and tell them they're doing something wrong. Firstly, mm. they're still alive and they've been enduring this for centuries. You need to sit down and learn from them. Yeah. And so I've really been, uh, the best word is humbled. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, most importantly, educated to understand that in the United States of America, you're dealing with a large system and you have to be mindful of how you're participating at all times. Wow. Yeah. Tiffany, you and I, we have such similar stories. The we we immigrated here. You were four. I was six. We both moved to New Jersey. Um, our our moms are nurses. Like we just have all of these similarities, except for the fact that you came to America as a black woman and I did not. And so we came into this country and then we were placed on different rungs of this hierarchy. Mm. Um, and so that, that that's where there's like a fork in the in the road of this story of the the different um like privileges I was afforded, and also how I was taught to internalize the structure of white supremacy, um, and how I was taught anti blackness and um from society from American society in the way you're talking about like separating yourself from blackness to to attempt climbing Mm -hmm. this ladder right but i was really struck by one of your interviews where you were talking about um your narcissistic relationships 
interpersonal relationships. And I think you were you were you were saying that you think certain uh, marginalized people are actually sort of attracted to these dynamics because of the greater um, societal dynamics and because of, you know, this framework of America um, as a narcissist. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that of like, how do you think that happens? What do you think? um, Why do you think that that happens? You know, when we think about um, pathology, you know, from a psychological standpoint, psychology really only looks at individual people. Mm -hmm. But I think, Andre, I saw you post something on Twitter the other day and you're like, but wait a minute. If everybody has mental illness, maybe it's a society that's mentally ill, you know? <laughs> Gotta like look at the environment. It's actually a larger problem at play. And yes. we are failing to really recognize that the pathology that you will see on an individual level, when you start seeing it in a widespread way, it may be very well attached to the society socializing these folks. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about um, the, the idea of narcissism, you know, people really think narcissism is just a matter of like self obsession, but it's more than that. It's actually emptiness at the core, mm-hmm. at the core of this human being, there's some part of the human being, I always say the human part is missing and to <laughs> yeah. fill the human part. There's this desperate clawing to anything to kind of fill the human part, um, mm-hmm. which they call narcissistic supply and narcissists wow. can get supply from any number of things. And it doesn't always have to be good. You can even get supply from conflict. Anything that Mm -hmm. gives you that supply is going to drive the behavior of a narcissist. And now to the the, the point that I want to make about the emptiness, when we look at the history of the United States of America, it's about assimilation. And people don't sit with the fact that assimilation means you're losing your identity as a a people. Mm -hmm. And that's literally the demand. The demand is you come to the United States of America and you assimilate into people don't even know anymore. It's, It's essentially asking you to assimilate into wasp culture which Mm -hmm. is like anglo-saxon protestant culture and people Mm -hmm. don't even think about that anymore but these were the people who established the rules established the the culture wrote the basis of the laws so on and so forth so we are coming into a culture we are adopting this new language um we are you know losing so many aspects of ourselves and there comes that emptiness and so it's Mm -hmm. not just that we are attracted to these narcissistic abusive relationships is that we actually become it, it, it it is us to a large extent, mm. if we're not doing that work to fill ourselves back up with yeah. the human part, mm-hmm. with the culture, with the, the 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 connection, with the community, with the the music, with the food, with you know the food, the food, um, this mm-hmm. reality show. But in any case, um, if we're not like filling ourselves, we are literally just so empty, and that leaves you vulnerable to this type of pathological behavior and it's going to show itself in your relationships. It's going to show yourself, it's going to show itself in your friendships and even your relationships with your, with your family. And so I always caution people to not just kind of point a finger like, okay, well that person is pathological or this person has this issue. Mm -hmm. It's more like, what does these issues say about this person's environment and how does that impact? Yeah. You know, what it brings up for me as you say that is um, in Franz Fanon's book, A Dying Colonialism, he talks about how colonialism demands a self-emptying of the oppressed, right? And um, I mean, my book is about that, you know, like, you know, my family is very Jamaican, you know, 
And I heard some of the same things that you described, Tiffany, and you described Trisha's as well. Is that like, yeah, like Jamaicans come here and, you know, Jamaica is black country, but, you know, there is this distancing from African-American people if they can try, you know, there's this pressure to assimilate into this. And so there's this, there's, there is this desire to empty the oppressed of themselves, right? Mm. And to, to not have, you know, your African roots, your Caribbean roots, wherever that is, you know, and I've always felt um, a bit advantaged by the fact that my parents were so very like fresh off the boat and very mm-hmm. patriotic and very cultural about Jamaica. So like I grew up singing, you know, Jamaican folk songs and all that other kind of stuff. And I wonder, Tiffany, if like how how your connection to your heritage, to the island of Trinidad, how that has, you know, helped or or how you've related to that, you know, throughout your story and how that might how that might have anchored your identity, you know, through living in this environment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was first talking about and writing about leaving America, I was in the process of doing this stuff. I was in the process of leaving. I was in the process of Mm. recognizing what I was participating in and and rejecting it. But Mm. at this point, I'm I'm on the other end of making many of those decisions. And the kind of healing and wholeness I feel really Mm. affirms that I literally got out of something terrible. Mm. Um, Because going back home, being back in my country being, you know, you, you know, Trish, I don't know how much you go back to Trinidad, but just being able to walk through, you know, the savannah and people say good day, good evening, or, you know, just being able to enter into environments and be seen as, as a black woman. And it's fine. It's normal. Mm. It brings so much healing. And then you got the music and then you got the mm-hmm. booty shaking. And you know, I like to say my ass. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to lie to y'all. <laughs> And, you know, being able to express yourself culturally and yes. not be judged, being able for to embrace that as a, a point of empowerment. It's so weird that I'm in that mindset often. And it's only when I come back here that somebody will make a comment like, oh, you were wearing that. You weren't wearing any clothes. What? Mm. Like, oh, people must have sex there. It must be really everybody's having sex. And it's like, <laughs> me and we were just actually, everybody, like, we, like we were talking so, about this you know, recently. Because we were talking about like conservative conservatism, conservatism, um, <laughs> conservatism. And, <laughs> and, that was okay. and, and religion, and how like my mom is like my family is like Muslim, Hindu, Christian, like all the things, but like a lot of them are pretty religious, but we'll still like go to carnival and we'll still like dress as one does and it's like not a thing it's it's not like judged at all and um and so why i have such a different relationship with religion to a lot of people who grew up in the states with like um with uh, the puritanical culture but um i i as a child like really separated myself from my culture because i just so wanted to be american i like wanted to be white um and as an adult, it it just like makes me like ache a little that I wasn't able to like access so much yeah. like richness and beauty throughout my life that like when you when you were talking about like that the emptying, I was like, I feel like I'm in therapy right now. Like I was like, oh my God, like 
there was so much that I emptied myself of. Um, and I think there's also just with that so much um, more community that we, because America is so, so individualist um, yep. that we lack here. And I feel like that's a big part of the, a big part of that emptying. Um, yeah. So, that to that point, that actually, by the way, is a part of being in an abusive relationship isolation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. people, don't oh, there we go. About, people don't really think about how isolated they are in these environments. And they're excruciatingly isolating. And that's why, you know, even throughout the country, you see so much segregation because, I mean, what's the easiest way to keep people vulnerable and keep people oppressed? It's to segregate them, it's to isolate them into these little, you know, pockets. And fortunately, um, where I'm at right now in Jersey City, for example, there's a lot of immigrant influx. Mm-hmm. And I mean, people have also, I mean, I'm surprised. I'm like, what is going on here? And, you know, um, and so I, one could only hope that now there's always immigrant in, influx in the United States of America. That happens all the time. But one can only hope that coming into this moment, we recognize that we should be protecting these identities and not yes. forcing these changes that have left us feeling so, you know, so, so broken and so hurt and empty for so long. And I think to a large extent, many people are starting to see that. And I I just, I I feel like that's the hope. That's the shining hope at this point. Do you ever experience that pressure to kind of assimilate into blackness? Like when you're in black space, do you ever experience, you know, people being like, oh, they just dropped us off in different places on, you know? Um, off the boat, you know, because I remember that is something I still struggle with, you know, being, I always felt Jamaican, you know, like I've, yeah. I've always felt because, because that is literally how we were raised in my house, you know, but it's like, when I say that people are like, ah, you know, yeah, but you an Atlanta nigga, you know and I'm like? <laughs> but I'm like, do you know how many, speaking of, you know, um, that kind of isolation, like, there are so many concentrated neighborhoods of Jamaicans mm-hmm. yep, in yep. the Atlanta area. So even like if you lived in that area where we grew up, this f- a funny story was like when we moved in, we were like the first black family in our particular neighborhood. And so, but there was an influx of Jamaicans in the eighties to that area of, of Atlanta. And so the white folks that were living there did not like that. And so they started putting up Confederate flags. Well, we're all Caribbean. We didn't know what the Confederate flag was. So everyone just started putting up their flag. You know, so people are putting up the Trinidadian flag, the Guyanese flag, the Jamaican flag, because we just thought it was flag day. I love this. (laughs) You know, so like people don't understand that, like, even though we were in that area, like these were like little enclaves for for us. And so we kept that culture very rich. But um, I have found that even being in black space, there are many African-Americans who don't care to see the distinction between like, yes, we're black and I'm on your side. I'm going to mark the streets. I'm going to organize. I'm going to do all those things. I'm going to talk. I'm going to, you know, chant down white supremacy and all that kind of stuff. But we eat oxtail and rice and peas in this house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot to be said about the relationship between African-American people and immigrant black people. In all honesty, I think that would take a, a, a whole podcast in and of For itself. For sure. 
because it's a very complex dynamic. Um, it's one where there's a lot of hurt, a lot of resentment, where both sides do some really damaging stuff. Yes. Um, and so for me, positioning myself anywhere in the world, I think the one thing that really gives me the most pause and makes me feel the best about myself is the idea that I am literally the living dream of someone of my ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, and a big part of that dream was that we could come here and do something and make something of ourselves. And whatever that something is, it may not be precisely what it is we wanted it to be and mm -hmm. what it is we dreamed of. But what it is, in fact, is we are living, walking, intercultural, extremely exposed, like globalized, um, yes. educated as a young mm -hmm. folk, as a young generation, mm -hmm. people, millennials. I mean, I mean, anybody from the from the 60s moving up, we are experiencing such an extremely beautiful um, like reawakening of who we are and yes. what that means and being positioned in this moment in history, I would say has to be one of the most significant and amazing things. And I'm just grateful for that. However, we manage to kind of repair these large and hurtful chasms between communities. God alone knows. But yeah. what we can say is it doesn't matter. Even if you're black, if you're white, if you're brown, if you're whatever, everybody know who Tupac is. Like, come on. <laughs> you know, like, doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, no offense. At this point, everybody probably eats oxtail. Like, it's not even like, in fact, we're fighting white people for oxtail I at hope this so. point. That's why the that's why the cost is going up. Oh, right, <laughs> because so. they're making the oxtail pizza over there where you where you what? at in your region of the country. Yes. You know, the oxtail. So, so he was he's like, oh, we eat oxtail. Then he told them the secrets, and now they're going out and buying the oxtail. <laughs> Give it back. No, no the but that's kind of what that was like. That was the point of this. That was the point of this experiment. This yes. idea that cultures can exchange things. And we are seeing that we are living proof of that. And yes. so uh, for me, going back to the idea of like entering a black space and feeling like I need to like, you know, I, I don't feel any way. It, the same way I feel in a black space is the way I feel in a white one is the way I feel in a Trinidad space, the way I feel in African-American space, which is that I am all of these things. Yes. Every single one of these things has influenced me so drastically that it's such a big part of my identity that when I'm in those spaces, I'm just grateful to have what that space gives me. Yeah. Aside from toxic spaces, because I don't do that. <laughs> but that is <laughs> How are you feeling about the thesis of your book post 2020? We saw the greatest, the biggest, you know, protest for racial justice in our lifetime. And I don't know how much progress people feel has been made or what or whatnot, but I got the perfect story. I got the perfect story. I got the perfect tell story. We'll perfectly tell you exactly how mm -hmm. I feel. So 2020 rolls around. Um, George Floyd was murdered. I wrote uh, an opinion piece for the New York Times. BBC called me. They're like, mm -hmm. we want to do an interview with you. I was like, OK, cool. So I jump on this interview with BBC. One of the first questions they asked was like, so is this a turning point for America? Everything is going to be better, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I was like, no. What this is, is the moment of the unmasking. That's what I call it. So mm -hmm. anybody who's been in an abusive relationship knows that the most dangerous part of an abusive relationship is when you recognize that you're in one and mm -hmm. when you try to leave it. And so this was right on the heels of Donald Trump coming out of office or getting voted out. And I was mm -hmm. like, y'all should be scared. That man cray cray. And that country is also cray because it because narcissism is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And you, narcissists don't like to lose power. 
And yeah. I warned them. I was like, yeah, I would be, I would be very concerned. Me personally, I don't think it's a moment of triumph. I think we should be a little bit concerned and, uh, you know, mm. like, okay, cool. So now months go by January 6th happens. I'm, I'm in Trinidad. I get a phone call. Once again, it's BBC. Mm-hmm. I get the phone. They're like, Hey, we want to do an interview with you. I was like, okay, cool. And so the first question they asked me, they're like, Oh, so, um, do you feel vindicated? Mm-hmm. I was like, so they didn't believe me the first time. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was at that point, it really reinforced my thesis because folks, it is what it is. It, I'm not giving you an opinion. It's like, this right. is my analysis of the behavior of this country over history. Right. Here is the mm-hmm. cycle. Here is the data. There is mm-hmm. a work cited page. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Is water wet? Water wet. (laughs) Is water wet? (laughs) So right now you are you are back in New Jersey. You said you're Mm -hmm. going back and forth. Um, what does the future look like for you? Like what are you looking forward to? What are you working on? Well, um, after being embroiled in this whole family court situation, I really mm-hmm. got my eyes open to what the heck that is. And it's horrible and it's mm-hmm. terribly broken and it's extremely predatory. And, you know, sadly, it enables a lot of abuse because it's a capitalist system that runs on money. So pretty much, you know, anybody that comes in there with money can do whatever they want to their partner. Mm-hmm. They can say whatever they want. And if you don't have money to defend yourself, good luck. And, you know, I would have never known these things had I not been embroiled in that kind of conflict. Um, And I've also been a little bit public about it. So women have reached out to me and told me their stories. And I'm like, yo, I need to spend some time educating people about what's happening here, because this Mm -hmm. level of atrocity kind of opens the door to what it is women are facing um, in a way that I would have never even thought about, if you want me to be honest. So it's been a point of education even for me, because. The same way I had to come to terms with what it means to be black in America I, and, and even in the Western world, in this modern era, I've had to come to terms with what it means to be a woman. And mm. this is one of those things that has really forced my eyes open like, Lah! and I'm like, mm. ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's kind of on the horizon for me, just kind of working on getting those stories told, uh, working on hopefully another book um, that kind of gives people good insights into what that is and where we're yeah. at there and what that means for women, what that means for what we should be fighting for and how we should be positioning ourselves against these structures that are literally trying to kill us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that aside, I mean, I'm just looking forward to um, embracing, you know, this moment because like I told you, like I happened to land in Jersey city because that's where my kids are. And mm-hmm. this environment is just like blossoming with, all of this influx. And mm. so this is a huge moment of change for the world. Undeniable. Yes. Nothing is going to be the way that it was before. And whoever doesn't know that, well, they're just delusional. And mm. one thing I am is a champion of change. So this is my moment. That's what I said. <laughs> let's do this. What I have keeps, no idea what it's going to look like, but let's do this. You know, what keeps you showing up to keep championing change in the way that you do? Um, Firstly, it excites me. Um, there's nothing mm-hmm. more exciting. To me. Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing more empowering to me than to tell my story, than to tell the stories of others, than to, you know, not just hope for, but but kind of like where we're like linking together and saying like this is what we're this is where we at, and it's also mm-hmm. a matter of survival. 
Like I smile every day. Uh, people assume I'm always happy because I'm, I'm a cheery, happy go lucky person, but that's just a personality that doesn't mm-hmm. reflect what it is. I have to go through every single day of my life mm-hmm. and how I am literally fighting to survive my life. So, mm-hmm. and on one end it's like, okay, I, I feel empowered by what I do. But on the other end, it's like, I'm literally fighting to survive. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. I understand. Relatable content. Yeah. That is so relatable. Yeah, but Andre, but, why do you but, keep but, fighting wait, for wait, justice? Wait. But but just so we're clear, when we fight in, we gotta make sure, you know, in turn out we use we use a bottle and a spoon when we're on the road to keep the meat. Gotta make it fun, it can't be struggle. Absolutely. I mean, no, you yeah. gotta cry sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Andre and I have talked about that a lot. Just like the joyfulness of the struggle of Caribbean people. It's yes. just like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you have to. You have to. Yeah. You know. That that is the spirit of Africa. That's yes. what I say. That's the spirit of Africa. The the yes. spirit of Africa lives on through the fact that we smile and we laugh and we dance through any damn thing. And that's why they have all these videos of these ghetto kids, you know, that's what they call them, the dancers. From, mm, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and 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 they will and these children, um, as America sees it are in environments that are so like, oh, they don't have this or they don't have that, but somehow they dance and then they're smiling and they're like, how are they doing that? Because no matter what you have in this country, you're still struggling to smile. That's why. (laughs) So that's the part I try not to lose. It's like, no, 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 you ain't going to take that part of me. Shoot. That booty going to shake and that smile going to smile. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tiffany, it's been so great talking to you. It's been great having you on the show. We'll absolutely have to have you back sometime if you're willing um, we'll we'll have all your information in the show notes so people can follow you on social media and get the book Black Yay. American Refugee support Black artists absolutely and um, I'm, this is always so awkward signing off I haven't figured it out yet y'all so like but you know thanks again for listening to the Hope and Heart Pill you'd think after five six years of doing this I'd know exactly how to sign off too um, but anyway thanks everyone for listening to the Hope and Heart Pill podcast we love you we couldn't do this without you and we will you will hear from us next time bye <laughs> I know how I sign off Andre <laughs> Bye. Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music, that's spelled T R I S H E S, music on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at The Andre Henry on Instagram and TikTok, and at Andre Henry on Twitter. Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trisha's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.